Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Just as Arnold said, none of us deserve you. But you are a gracious God, and we love you. With all of our hearts, we love you. And we seek you this morning and ask that you would teach us. Your word is important, and parts of it are clear, and parts of it are a little unclear. And so we ask that you would help us to understand. We come across this guy named Melchizedek. Who is this guy? And we know that it must be important. So teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Page 654 in the Bibles we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And we are at the mysterious Melchizedek, the king priest. Who is this masked man? And I thought about that, so I thought we'd better watch a video clip. Here he is, Sheriff. Hello, Cavendish. Didn't think you'd catch him, partner. Now we got the whole dang bunch. You and your men are to be congratulated, Sheriff. Thanks. But if it hadn't been for you, we'd have gotten nowhere. I'll be with you in just a minute. I'll take care of this one personally. Come on. Are you there, Silver? No, Cavendish can't catch it, Kimotabi. You take off, Matt. I'm going to continue to wear the mask and keep my identity a secret. For how long? Our job has just begun. We have a lot of trails to follow. That good. Sure. Before the lockup, do you mind telling me who the masked man is? Wouldn't mind at all, except that... Hey, where'd the masked man go? He and his Indian pal are going out to get the horses, Sheriff. Well, I guess he isn't one to stick around for a party. Well, who is he? I don't rightly know his real name, but I've heard him called the Lone Ranger. We may never know who that masked man is, but who is this guy that we're looking at today in the Bible? If I were to ask you who the most important figures in the Old Testament are, you might say Abraham or Moses probably, but you would probably never guess Melchizedek. Might not even be able to pronounce that. Who is this obscure figure who's only mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, and Psalm 110? Who is this guy and why does it matter? Let's look at our passage in the book of Hebrews that explains the Old Testament passages. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. 
without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. There, it's all clear, right? (laughs) Melchizedek is referenced to prove Jesus has a superior priesthood to Aaron. The Levitical priesthood is very important to Judaism, so this is a tall task. But as we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is superior to everyone because he is God and he is the plan of God. So how does Melchizedek enter this question? Our author uses typology to prove his point. What is typology? In the Old Testament, there were real events that took place, but they were pictures of a greater meaning that takes place in the New Testament. So they were types, pictures. In the Old Testament, we have prophecies of the Messiah and predictions of what he would be like, but we also have these Old Testament pictures pointing to the ultimate reality in the New Testament. Uh, These Old Testament pictures, this one particularly of Melchizedek, is a type or picture of Jesus. And that's how we're supposed to understand that. Jesus, the ultimate king-priest. So let's walk through this. We have in verses 1 through 3, apparently my clicker isn't working, but when I go like that, they'll they'll know. Melchizedek was a king. Uh, We see here that he's... Uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melech is king, Zedekah is righteousness, so king of righteousness. Uh, We see here in our passage that he is superior. (laughs) Oh, boy, now it's working great. Superior to Abraham. In verse 7 it said, without a doubt the inferior is blessed by the superior. So, And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now to say that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, that's almost like fighting words to the Jews because Abraham was the top dog under, under, just underneath God for Judaism. But here we see he's superior. I want you to turn to John 8. 56 through 59, that will back this up as well. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees. And they're talking about Abraham and so forth. And this is what Jesus 
says, John 8, verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Remember, Abraham lives way back in 2000 B.C. This is about 30 A.D. And he's saying, Abe saw my day and rejoiced. And the Jews replied, you aren't even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, did that sound like bad English, that last phrase? Because it was bad English. Normally it would have been before Abraham was, I was, right? That's good English. By the way, it's bad Greek too. That's why they translate it like this. Terrible Greek for a point. He's making a point. He says in the Greek, before Abraham was, ego eimi. That's the Greek phrase that translates the phrase back in Exodus chapter 3 when uh, God gave Moses his personal name, God's personal name, and his name was Ego Ami. He said, I am. And so Jesus is saying, before Abraham was Yahweh. He was calling himself God, and that is why the response immediately in verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. So Jesus is God, thus even greater than Abraham. And we see in our passage bringing this idea out as well. He is superior to Abraham, and he is the king. It's just very touchy. There we go. Of righteousness and peace. Specifically, he says he's the first he's the king of righteousness, verse 2, then also the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. Now, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, these two words, righteousness and peace, are often found together, okay? So many, many times we see this, and righteousness is always first, and there, be, there we'll see the reasoning behind that. Look at Isaiah 32, verse 17, as one example. Isaiah 32, 17 It says, the result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quiet confidence forever. Do you want that security? Do you want that peace? The result of righteousness. So righteousness comes first, then peace. We see that also in Psalm 85, verse 10. Turn there. I wish I had time to go through the entire chapter of Psalm 85. It makes this make much more sense, but we do not have that much time. And so we'll look at verse 10 here. It says, faithful love and truth will join together. Now those two words are also found many, many times in the Old Testament together. Faithful love and truth. Chesed and emeth. In the Hebrew. So we see faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Now, the context of this passage, the 
uh, sons of Korah are calling out to God. And verse 4 says, return to us, God of our salvation. Will you not revive us again? And they're calling out for, give us your salvation, it says in verse 7. And then God does come through, but because of his faithful love and truth that are joined together and his righteousness and peace that go together. But why is righteousness always first. You see, peace, true peace, can only come from God. True peace comes from God. But to come to God, we must be perfectly righteous. And that is the dilemma of humanity. There is none who are righteous. All of us have blown it. But yet God does not lower his standards. He doesn't say, okay, I guess nobody can get in, so I'll lower my standards. 80% righteous. He doesn't do that. 100% righteous. Remember with Adam and Eve, do not eat the fruit. The day you do, you will die. Perfect righteousness is his standard. So none of us can come to him in that regard. And so we see God's plan, which is Jesus. He came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we deserve to pay. He took our sins and placed them upon himself and then suffered the wrath of God. But he also took his righteousness. Remember, he was perfect. He was perfect righteousness, wasn't he? He took his righteousness, and for those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ, he counts his righteousness to our account. Takes our sin, puts it on himself, takes his righteousness, puts it on us. And so when we come to God... If you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, outwardly expressing that in baptism, in fact, in Galatians 3.27, it says those who are baptized have been clothed in Christ. Okay? So if you're clothed in Christ, then you have his righteousness put to your account. It's kind of like because when you put your trust in Christ, you are in Christ. Wonderful, incredible, intimate relationship with Christ. But it's as if you're almost like married, okay? His account becomes your account. His perfect righteousness is put into your account. And so you can then come to God. Because you have the perfect righteousness. Not your own, but his, Jesus' perfect righteousness. Whoo! Ha! I I tell you what, we were singing that song about the cross, lead me to the cross. It's like, yes, it's the cross that brought this about. We have an amazing God. And here he is, Jesus. Remember, this points to Jesus, who is the ultimate king of righteousness and peace. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. If we were to walk through the book of Romans, you'd see in chapters 1 through 3 how all of us have sinned. All of us 
are miserable, cannot come to God by our own righteousness. And then it introduces God's plan of Jesus Christ who died in our place. And with that, when we place our faith in him, he credits that as righteousness. Chapter 4 actually talks about Abraham, and then it concludes. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, because of all that, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else can bring us this peace. And we try to make peace. We try to experience peace in our life. We try everything possible. Nothing can do it except for Jesus Christ. And it comes when we are declared righteous and then we receive the peace of God. Now, if you haven't been justified through repentance and faith, you do not have peace with God and are still under the dilemma of humanity. Uh, someone sent me this picture and it's kind of humorous, but it actually presents an incredible point. Here's an atheist. He says, How can I be here? I didn't believe in any of this stuff. You see, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not, it's real. That's the end result of those who don't have the perfect righteousness. None of us have it, but Christ says, I paid the price for you. Are you willing to put your trust in me? Now back to Melchizedek, superior to Abraham, king of righteousness and peace. And then he goes on and says he has no genealogy without, verse 3, without father, mother, or genealogy. Now, it's interesting with these Greek words, without father or mother, those are words found in the Greek and other places, and it's usually referred to orphans. Okay, no father or mother. Okay, that's it, typically. But this one, no genealogy. There is no other Greek writing anywhere that has this word. The author made it up. Made the word up because there's no concept of not having a genealogy. Okay? And so he had to come up with a word, genealogy with the ah at the beginning. Okay, So he makes up this word. No genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. He has no genealogy. Now here's the question. Okay, And this is where the scholars disagree. And this is what Kevin really wanted me to say. How do we answer this, Larry? Okay. Two major possibilities. Either it's typology. Melchizedek really did have a mom and dad, and, uh, but he just isn't mentioned. And so because it's not mentioned, the author of Hebrews sees that as a type of Jesus who did, really didn't uh, have any genealogy. He, was, you know, uh, you know, he, he goes to eternity because he's always existed, okay? Uh, that's one idea. The other idea is that Melchizedek actually wasn't a real human being. He was Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate form. That Jesus himself appeared way back with Abraham and didn't have a genealogy and, and, and so forth. And so the scholars disagree. Is this a theophany, meaning Jesus appeared way back then in a temporary pre-incarnate form? Uh, or is this just a type? 
and I don't know. Okay. Kevin, is that okay? There we go. All right. It's one of those two. (laughs) But what is it pointing to? That is what's most important, that Jesus is eternal, okay? In fact, we, we have a clue to this in one of the prophecies of Messiah. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, okay? In Micah 5, 2, this is the famous prophecy that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We got to go to Bethlehem uh, in, uh, on our trip. It's actually my least favorite part of the trip, but, uh, but uh, Bethlehem is just a dirty city. It just wasn't... Didn't do much for me. And then, and then the place where they claimed Jesus dropped, you know, there's no, it didn't happen there. Anyway, Micah. <laughs> Can you tell I wasn't impressed? Okay. <laughs> Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We do know it was somewhere in Bethlehem. It says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Now, this is an interesting prediction here because he says Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, but his origins are from ancient times, meaning somehow he existed long before this point. Okay? When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he existed long before that. But what's fascinating about the Hebrew is this says in Hebrew, uh, his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. That ancient times is olam in the Hebrew and quite often means eternity, from eternity. So meaning Messiah has existed forever because he is God. All right, so we have these little clues in the Old Testament that are fascinating, but pointing to this ultimate reality. No genealogy. Remember the priests, the Levitical priests, they were dedicated to their pedigree. If they couldn't prove that they had their ancestors going back, 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 they didn't get to be priests. Here this guy shows up on the scene, no pedigree at all, and he's greater than any of these priests. (laughs) It's awesome. All right, so he has no genealogy. Now with this, verses 1 through 3, speaking primarily about Melchizedek as a king, pointing to Jesus, Jesus is our king. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because you need to ask yourself right now, who is on the throne of your life. Are you? Are you the leader of your life? Are you the ultimate reason and purpose of your life? Who is on the throne of your life? Who is the most important one? Is it Jesus? I have a wonderful book. It's called The Kingdom of Self by Earl Jabay, and I love the way it starts out. So I want to read a little bit of this, if I might. You don't have any choice. (laughs) The first thing a baby does when he comes into the world is to establish his kingdom. He, of course, is the king. He is number one because there is none higher than himself. He is in the position of a god. Babies do all this their first day among us. Shortly after birth, the baby is hungry. 
He's exhausted by a humiliating eviction from quarters, which, quite frankly, he thoroughly enjoyed. Besides, his source of food is cut off. A complaint must be registered immediately. The baby cries. He wants service. Each time the king cries out, he is obeyed. In a typical day, the king has about six feedings and three bowel movements. Roughly nine times each day, he tests the authority of his kingdom, and each time he is gratified with the results. All he has to do is cry, and someone will come running to attend his needs. Obviously, he is the center of the world. The world exists for him. He is a god. Not a single demand is made upon him. Apparently, he is the center of the world, a world which seems to exist for his sake. As his majesty, the baby, approaches his first birthday, he's aware that things are changing in certain ways. He can't quite put his finger on it, but it has to do with the attitude of his parents. Specifically, he's being restricted by such things as being placed in a playpen when it is not at all to his liking. And then there are such interesting objects, such as cigarette butts and lamps, which are not only snatched out of his hands, but that action is followed by an angry rebuke. The good old days of unrestricted freedom are a thing of the past. The king has no doubts about the love of his mother, but her respect for his authority certainly leaves something to be desired. In fact, his majesty wonders at times whether mother is becoming a rival authority. Somewhere around the baby's second birthday, a real problem arises. The problem is mother. She begins something called toilet training. The king is furious. Not only is he not consulted about this embarrassing inconvenience, after all, what was wrong with the diaper, but even worse, his earlier fears about his mother are confirmed. No question about it, she is presently an enemy. This means war. It is a war between two kingdoms, each authority wanting his own way. Mother may have more strength, but the king controls the bodily functions. What's more, he has one thing she hasn't reckoned with, strength of will. And a king that won't be beaten can't be beaten. Sometimes these toilet training wars last for years. Fortunately for civilization, however, this particular battle usually ends after a few weeks or months. But not the war. Many of you are still at war. War with God. Who is on the throne of your heart? Who is the most important one? Who is the king? Jesus is the only valid king. Next, verses 4 through 10. we see that Melchizedek was a priest. And he goes on and he says, consider how this man was, uh, this great man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. And we see this mentioning of tithes and so forth, that, but, that, but this emphasis that Melchizedek is a priest. In fact, in verse 1, he's called the priest of God most high. Elion is the Hebrew word there priest of God most high. So he's not a pagan priest. He's a real priest of the true God. Elion, uh, God most high, is the, the word that even the demons called Jesus. They said, you are the son of God most high. So it's clearly referring to the true God. So he is a priest of God. And then we see with this whole issue of tithing that he is superior to Levi and Aaron. 
See, all the priests had to have their lineage go back to Aaron to be able to be a priest that offers sacrifices or the Levites that helped out in the process. They had to point that, go that far, but he's superior to Levi and Aaron, we see in this regard. He's superior, as we've been seeing, to everyone. Many think that all religions are equal. And yet we see from the scriptures that is simply not allowed. Jesus is superior to all, superior to all religions, even the Jewish religion here, superior to Levi and Aaron. And he specifically backs this part up by this whole issue of tithing. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, the lesser tithes to, tithes to the greater. Therefore, uh, and then he even uses this in a sense, Levi, because Levi ha, uh, hasn't even been born yet. The, their tithes were offered to Melchizedek because they were still in the loins of Abraham. And that's kind of strange to us as we think through this argumentation. But clearly the point is, he is greater. They tithe. Abraham tithed to him. Now that brings up a question. Are we supposed to tithe? Because there are Christians who disagree on that. Some say, no, 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 tithing was the Old Testament. Now we just give 2%. Kind of like milk or something like that. Instead of the whole milk, you get the 2% deal. Okay. <laughs> and I don't have time to go into this, but I, our paper, or our, our paper, our passage talks about this. I have a paper written on this, if you're interested. It's in the, in the foyer there in our racks of papers that I've written, um, one on tithing, that I believe that tithing is still for today. Because, watch this argument here, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood is carried on by Jesus and is eternal. So it hasn't stopped. Of course, we are still called by God to tithe. This predates Moses' covenant, which was temporary. So tithing isn't just a part of Moses' covenant. And so, yes, we are supposed to tithe. Beautiful. There's wonderful passages. If we had time, Malachi chapter 3 shares how if you're not tithing, you're robbing from God, actually stealing from God, which is not a good idea. Okay? So, so stealing from God, well, not only that, but the opposite of that, he says, if you just do what I ask, I'm the one that gave it all to you anyway, basically is what he says, but if you do what I ask, I promise to bless you. In fact, in this thing, you can even test me on it. It's the only place in the Bible he says you can test God. Test me on this. I will take care of you. And so in faith, of course, we tithe. Well, okay, that's just a sidetrack there. But in this argument, back in our passage, verses 9 and 10, it sounds really weird to our ears, okay? It says, in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And you're like, what? Okay, it's because they thought differently than we think. In the biblical, both Old Testament and New Testament, we see the, what's called a corporate identity. And a corporate identity is critical in understanding who we are. 
We are rampant individualists as Americans, okay? That is not how the people in the Bible think, and it is not how God wants us to think. He wants us to see ourselves in this together. We are a people. It starts from the very beginning of the Bible. When Cain killed his brother, Abel, Cain asked this question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is absolutely yes. We're in this together. We sink or swim together. And it's not just the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, God uses these corporate ideas where he calls us the church. He calls us the body of Christ. And he calls us this as a church, also local churches, the church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, and so forth, the church here in Sauk Rapids, okay? So the church, the local church, is also called the body. And each of us are parts of that body. We're eyes, we're noses, we're ears. Imagine if the noses decided not to smell, okay? You know, and that's what happens, see, because God wants us to see ourselves as, as a people, and, and, and that's the way they saw it. They saw themselves as a people that went backwards into their ancestry, but also went forward into their children's children. They saw themselves as the people of God. We see ourselves this way, and God calls us to think of ourselves in this way. We all have a part to play in his grand plan. And if we're not getting in on that plan, we're not just hurting ourselves. We're hurting our body. Everyone here is equally important. Equally important. So find out your part, your place. Are you a mustache? Those are really important. Whatever your part, I'm just kidding. I don't know where that came from. Okay. So, Melchizedek was a priest, but pointing to Jesus ultimately. Jesus is our great high priest. So, he's our king, he's our great high priest. Who are you trusting in? Larry Crabb, in his book, Inside Out, a book I think every human being should read, especially if you're struggling internally and so forth, but but every person should read this book. He starts out, he says this, ever since God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, we have lived in an unnatural environment, a world in which we were not designed to live. We were built to enjoy a garden without weeds, relationships without friction, fellowship without distance. But something is wrong, and we know it, both within our world and within ourself. That's the problem. Later, he says, we long for both respect and involvement, impact and relationship. We are thirsty for what our soul thrives on. In the desert of a fallen world, our soul is parched. We receive neither respect nor involvement to the degree we deeply crave. Our Lord Jesus walked into a group of people whose ritualistic practice of religion had so numbed their souls that they no longer were conscious of unsatisfied desires. 
to move them from lifeless ceremony toward the vitality of knowing God, he stood up and shouted, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There was no thought that perhaps some were thirsty and others were not. Every fallen person created to enjoy God is thirsty. But many Perhaps most of the people Jesus invited were unaware of their thirst. Perhaps they had given up hope of ever finding satisfaction and had successfully turned their attention away from that ache inside by focusing on other matters. Thirsty people can sometimes become oblivious to their parched souls. So he's saying here the world is messed up. and We aren't even aware of our true thirst sometimes. Where are you trying to gain deep satisfaction? Who are you trusting in? And it must be Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and our great high priest. He unfolds the mystery of Melchizedek. He is superior to Abraham, Levi, and Aaron. He is on a level of his own. He is God. Will you bow to him with your life? Will you depend on him as your only hope? Will you surrender your own kingdom and come home to the only one who can truly satisfy the deepest longings of your soul? Melchizedek points us to Jesus our only hope. Let's pray. And Father, we confess our sin that we often climb upon the throne. And we ask you to forgive us. Only you belong there, Jesus. You are our king, the rightful king. We trust in you. And you are our priest who has offered the sacrifice to bring us forgiveness so that we can enter into the very presence of God and have fellowship with you. Thank you. I do ask if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that you draw them to yourself, help them to see how much you love them. And this wonderful plan, which is Jesus, is available to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and work.